0: I'm out of the cave, you look around, blood trenches your sword, you see it before you design details. Welcome.
1: And with us our episode eighteen journey begins. Welcome, I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This is we're talking to Stone the Brandy. He's a lead designer for Riot Games. He also worked on Diablo 3 and SimCity and Spore and just a whole like treasure trove of amazing games.
2: Yeah, this one was awesome. We got to chat about stuff other than web design and apps and the Apple Watch. So we hope you guys enjoy it. If you have thoughts on kind of
1: branching out, definitely hit us up on Twitter. This was our first user-driven episode listener driven a yes. listener hooked us up with this guest oh yeah yeah, yeah. rob he- tapela
2: we don't know how to pronounce your last name rob but, but thank you rob thank you yeah if anyone has suggestions for guests we are open to ideas um hit us up on twitter we're at design details fm or you can shoot us an email design details fm at gmail.com before we get into this episode everyone that's leaving itunes ratings You're like our best friend. You're officially the best. You
1: are the best. Number one listener, all of you.
2: And if you haven't done it yet, pull out your phone or your computer and open the iTunes podcast app and press the five-star icon. Uh, Every little bit helps us reach new audiences, get in front of new people, get new people on the show. So if you could uh, leave us a rating, that would be amazing. Thank you to everyone that's done that so far. Before we get into this episode, wanted to thank our always longtime supporter, Icon Finder. Our homies, IconFinder.com. IconFinder.com is the largest source of premium vector icons on the web. I just want to say that Brian's doing this from memory now. Yeah, I was actually about to say, this is scriptless, y'all. He's just um, staring
1: at my face and it's really off-putting.
2: So they actually wrote a blog post today. 500? Uh, 000 is the Four title. days ago. Yes, they just crossed five hundred thousand icons in the library. Uh they wrote a really awesome post. Uh we'll just put it in the show notes, I guess. Um Definitely. It's a great, great article about like what it means to have that kind of volume of icons. Um and how
1: it compares to other industries, which was really cool.
2: Yeah. And they're on pace to add another three hundred thousand icons in the next year. And there's just too many icons. They gotta,
1: they gotta reduce
2: that's what i thought but curation, then he, he made the point about like you go from like icon styles change over time and they're keeping up with that and i love that i
1: like that they talked about vanity metrics
2: <laughs> yeah 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 but it's a big number and they're adding a lot and the coolest thing is 70 percent of the revenue from those icons goes back to the original designers so they are and those designers are our friends so they buy us dinner yes <laughs> so help buy us a dinner Go to IconFinder.com, uh, sign up for IconFinder Pro. If you use the promo code ROBOT, you're going to get 50% off
1: your first month of IconFinder Pro, which is pretty cheap anyway. It's like 9 bucks a month. It's going
2: to be perfect for everyone out there working on an Apple Watch app or, or any kind of app you might be working on.
1: It's especially awesome for like front-end developers, which we know there are a lot of you out there that do front-end development and don't actually want to build your own icons.
2: So check them out. iconfinder.com and use the promo code Robot. Thanks again to iconfinder.com.
1: Speaking of sponsors who put out blog posts this week that we want to put in our show notes, Envision is sponsoring. And they just put out a new product called Tours, which lets you put commentary and markup on your designs so that people can it can foster discussion around the design itself.
2: You can have an entire app walkthrough with tool tips and the freaking A B tests. You can have different The freaking A B test. <laughs> You can show your your mock-up to a stakeholder in your company, have an A-B test, and have them comment on which version they like the best. Ah, so, such a good idea.
1: You can walk people through an entire experience and focus on attention on key elements. You can provide design rationale. You can call out specific details for targeted feedback, like saying help, please, to your designer, which is a whole thing. Highlight updates you made based on previous feedback. Present designs or iterations that aren't ready for or don't need a full prototype. Quick this or that test which which you like better this one or that one so straight up internal a b test it can do everything it's it's something that's already an indispensable tool and now it's even better yep i used envision all morning with uh the other designer
2: at buffer we had a full design wait review. you have a new
1: designer at buffer yeah it's
2: awesome and we spent all morning in an envision design review
1: are you saying you can do collaboration in envision
0: <laughs> is that actually as a matter of fact
2: when i am
1: <laughs> for those of you who don't know InVision wait, wait,
2: wait. <laughs> now we're getting to the script?
0: Now we're, we're touching the script. The script.
1: <laughs> no, we haven't touched the script. I've just been basing it on the blog post. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, with Envision you can build fully interactive prototypes without a single line of code. And everyone from copywriters to developers, clients to stakeholders can give their feedback right on your designs. That's intuitive project management tools and you've got your entire do- design process all in one place. Check it out today at envisionapp.com slash signup slash design details you'll get a special page just for us (laughs) go to it six months for free oh actually yes. six
2: months if you're even considering envision just go to that page because it's going to give you a crazy deal it shows envision that you support us and then envision will keep sponsoring the show and that's a plus for everyone so it's a win it's a win thanks envision
1: with that let's dive into episode 18 with stone labrandy so we're just going to talk about star wars for an hour right all right I can do that. <laughs> <leader>. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: So, we usually start each episode with, what are you working on? Like, my general role at Riot Games, which is a lead designer. So, Riot Games makes the game League of Legends, which is one of the world's biggest games right now, um, but they're trying to expand out and look at other games, so I'm in a research and development group that is just exploring new ideas uh, with a small team.
1: Awesome yeah i watch league of legends on twitch i just don't understand it <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's intimidating to get into i think if you don't
1: it's very complicated at a competitional level right right yeah
0: i mean it's one of the biggest esports so like recently just in korea they had the world finals and they sold out like this huge stadium um, people from all around the world came to it just it's, to watch it it's bigger than most u.s national sports right I, like I don't know the exact numbers. I heard it was bigger than basketball, but I'm not sure how it compares to some of the other ones.
1: That's for good reason. Basketball is kind of boring these days.
2: Well, I was I was curious. Um, so you've sort of bounced around from like studio to studio, and one thing that you mentioned in your talk was like getting pigeonholed Which into talk? Uh, uh, your talk at GDC for this year. You Which mentioned is? like it can be easy for a game designer to get pigeonholed into like a certain genre or category or even a platform. So I'm curious how you've avoided that, like what you've worked on.
0: Um, well, a lot of it is just time. Like the longer you're around, then the more stuff you'll end up working on. And in the beginning when I was working on Diablo 3, which is one of the first games that I worked on in the industry, um, I was personally really into strategy and action type games. Um, later on, like when I had the opportunity to work on SimCity, I had first turned it down because I felt like, oh, that's not the kind of game that I'm like capable of working on, like a SimCity style simulation game i don't have any experience on that but from a game design perspective when you really start breaking it down you start to really see the similarities uh, between a lot of the systems and a a player might not think there's anything in common between diablo 3 and SimCity, but from a game design point of view there's actually a lot of systems that are very similar Um, for instance like you have an inventory screen in diablo that you fill up with different items that give you different powers and in some ways, your city in SimCity is a gigantic inventory screen that you're filling up with different items like sports stadiums and schools and police stations. But it's a finite grid, and you can only pack so much stuff into it. But the things you choose to take with you are the things that are going to define your experience with that city in the same way the things you take with you in your inventory will define your experience in a game like Diablo. Huh.
1: I never considered that the this like city budget was basically like a weight limit.
0: Yeah, it can That's be. That's really in interesting. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and some of it, maybe it's like, maybe it's stretching a bit because I can see these parallels between these different things. And it's like, am I just forcing them into there or, you know, do they really exist? But the more you start studying game design and you realize there's a few like basic principles that will cut across all the different games, uh, the way that people will like work towards goals and how to achieve those goals, what kind of opposition, how hard or easy is it uh, to get there. Um, so there's these kind of universal ways of people want to achieve a goal in a game. And your job as a designer is to put stuff in their way, because if it was really easy to get to the goal, the game would be completely boring. And if it's really hard, you would give up in frustration. Um, so a lot of the challenge of game design is putting just enough obstacle in the way.
1: (laughs) It's the polar opposite of UI design. That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) That's so cool. We're like, make it so that people can be super, super lazy and just immediately get to what they want. And that is the complete opposite.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you've ever played like uh, a pinball machine or something where the ball can't fall out the bottom, it's like you would get bored of it really quickly. Like your score would just keep going up and up and up. And you'd be like, I'm kind of bored of this now. Um, the fact that the ball can drain out the bottom is what keeps it interesting. And then you feel good when your score is really high on a pinball machine because you know you overcame that challenge where like if the ball never drained out the bottom, then everybody would have exactly the same score, which is how long can you play till you get bored? (laughs) Did you study game design formally? No, there wasn't really a game design curriculum when I was growing up. I mean, I made games ever since I was a kid. So I was always making board games and card games and uh, playing these like epic, like paper games. Um, when I was a kid that games that would take months to play out. And when the computers came along, of course, everything transferred over to computers because instead of looking up all these charts and tables, you could just have the computer do all that work for you. Um, so I think I just growing up playing games and, uh, my father was hugely competitive. He was the kind of dad that never lets you win just because you're a kid. And like <laughs> he will win every way he can and then kind That's of cool. say, like, you should get better if you really want to take me on.
1: That's exactly where mine was. That's yeah. amazing.
0: <laughs> so it's kind of good in a way. Like it, it kind of makes you step up your game a bit because you really do want to win. Um, it's not just handed to you.
1: Mine built a, like an extension to the Monopoly game board that basically said, Greg wins. Greg being my dad, okay, it was
0: ridiculous.
1: <laughs> that must have been awful
0: to I had play custom Monopoly. card decks. <laughs> yeah, those are the kind of things you don't do as a game designer. <laughs> Break the rules.
2: Yeah. Um, and then was Blizzard the first place you ended up to do to do video game design, or how
0: did you? Yeah. Had so I had done uh, before then. I have kind of a eclectic background, so I'd wanted to do architecture first. Then I got into film. Um, it was actually because of Star Wars when I was impressionable yes. age. I was like, oh, I'm gonna go to uh george lucas's school which was usc and make uh, movies Um, and then i got there and realized i really liked animation then 3d animation was taking off and so then i started getting into that which eventually led into programming uh, which eventually led into video games so my first job actually at blizzard wasn't as a designer it was as a game programmer doing ui for the artists so that they could get their assets into the game and how did you navigate
2: from that to being the lead designer of diablo Three. yeah
0: so blizzard north the studio that i was at um that was responsible for the diablo series they had a philosophy of their studio which is we will not hire designers um everybody that we bring on to the team is considered a designer so every artist is a designer every programmer is a designer even the you know the receptionist is a designer so we are we don't need a designer why would we need that that's kind of redundant to have one person tell everybody else what to do um But design is more like, you know, design is not about one person telling everybody else what to do. Design is really about coming up with plans so that the team can kind of function and everybody can communicate well. So the more I worked there, the more I realized that it's like something's just missing. Um, They were making a transition from 2D game into a 3D game at that time. And it was really difficult to make that transition in a way that was kind of smooth I mean, the the game ended up taking 10 years to get out as it was from when they first started. Right. Um, But the more design work I did there, the more everybody around came to appreciate what it could do uh, in terms of keeping everybody focused and uh, knowing where to go in the project. So how did, how did you end up in
2: that role? Was that like you kind of evangelizing design and kind of naturally came up? Or was that a more
0: formal Um process? Yeah, it really was. It was I would do a little bit of it just because I felt it was necessary and still do my programming job. And just as time went on, I was doing more and more design and being asked to do more and more design and less and less programming. And I eventually got to the point where it was like I did zero programming. It was full-time design. Okay, this
2: is like a really newbie question because i just don't know that much but like what does game designer mean to you like what is the responsibility
0: yeah the easiest way for me to describe it to people is much like an architect would be um so like the architect isn't the person who builds the house um and the architect maybe isn't even the person who designs the house in that way like a client comes to the architect and says this is where i would like to live could you please give me the plans for this so that we could give them to a contractor to build but you're also not the decorator then either Um, No, not really, because you're – well, and you can be depending on the studio and the size and and what roles you need to do. But for a big project uh, like Spore Diablo or SimCity, you have so many people on the team that there's a lot of specialists who are really good at what they do. So your job is much more to say, like, here's the plans for what we're going to be working on over the next four years, and everybody needs to understand these plans. But you have your own sections that you can work on that you're the experts on. Um, so it's not really like a visionary role as much as just an organizational role and saying, you know, here's the blueprint, you know, the architects usually don't take out the hammers and, and build the walls. Um, but the contractors, if they didn't have those plans, they wouldn't quite know what to build.
2: So we looked at your, uh, portfolio work for Diablo, like in the early stages and it was super like wireframey, I guess.
0: Um, yeah, like it, you could probably see the architectural like yeah. influence that it has.
2: As you're doing that, can you envision in your head the finished product, or do you just focus on staying in that wireframe as much as possible?
0: Um, well, for the output of those plans, I think it's really important not to get real, like not to be super like photorealistic of what it's going to look like. It's a bunch of icons, and it just says, this is important key features in this game. And you don't want to spend a lot of time like noodling around with like what the monster looks like. It's very conceptual. Yeah. And, but, but it's everything that you put on the page needs to be very important. So I don't put a lot of like chart junk or just things that would be, oh, it looks cool. So I'm going to stick this in the corner. Like every icon I put on that paper means something and it has a reason for being there. Um, so if there's a tree there, it means there's going to be a forest and the forest is somehow important. It's not just a bunch of decorations of trees.
1: Well, it's not like a UX wireframe, but for like a story right yeah like we
2: were looking through thing and you break down minute by minute of gameplay but what about um like the interface itself of the game so like diablo the the bottom bar and the toolbar uh, or
0: skill bar yeah so i worked some on that but we tend to have like ux designers working with us from the beginning of the game and they that's really their job is to come up with that so uh from a designer's point of view, from like a lead designer's point of view, is to say, here's all the things we're going to need buttons for, but it's not really to say, I need them in this configuration, or this shape, or this size, other than to say, some things are very important, and they're going to be used with high frequency, so we need to make sure that the player doesn't miss out on those things, and other things might be, kind of they could, it's okay if they're buried, for instance, because it might be a low frequency type of interaction in the game.
1: One of the most standout things to me is that there's a lot of temporal design. Like, everything is based on a timeline, right? Like, you can't let a user progress too fast, or you can't let them win the game right at the beginning, right? So. Yeah,
0: and I think every player plays differently, so most of those are just averages, but they're just kind of reality checks, because like the, the alternative approach, which could get you in a lot of trouble, is just say, let's just start building this game, and then have players play it, and then we'll figure out how long it took. <laughs> and then you just kind of just see what happens as you go forward. And I think you know, I think that's an okay way of making games, and there's probably a lot of games that are made that way. Um, but when you look at it from a really top-down approach and said, we would like to make 20 hours of content, let's divide that up into four acts, and each act is going to be five hours, and now we know like the, the sub-scenes within those acts, and we can break those down as well.
2: But even some of those, like how do you come up with those numbers for hours and minutes? Is there is there a mathematical basis behind that, or just an experience? of It's what more of experience, okay. and
0: especially when you're working on a game with just a plus one number on the end of it, like Diablo three or SimCity five or whatever. Like those games have a template already that you're working from, so you already kind of understand the players of those games. You already understand how much time people want to invest in those games. Um, coming out of you know coming out of the data that you've gathered from the previous versions. But for something like Spore, where we didn't have a model that we were working from, uh, a lot of it is just kind of guesswork, but some of it comes through how much content you actually think you can afford to put into the game. Because if you say like, and, and Will Wright had actually said this about the creature game of Spore, it's like, this is a place that you could go and you could run around forever and you would never get bored of running around these islands. But when I took all the content that we actually had and I actually physically like mapped out how fast, Players like to consume content, which is pretty fast because if you keep seeing the same thing over and over again, you get bored. Um, then you actually time it out and you're like, you know, there's about an hour's worth of content here. So we have a mismatch between the vision of what the game might be like and the actual content that we have to work with within this game. And then we have to meet and get together and, and discuss you know, what we're really going to do here to solve that. Can we call that the Molyneux effect? Um, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't call it that, but yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's easy. And this is, I think the difference between designers and say like a creative director or visionary, um, like it's really easy to just have ideas and everybody on the team has ideas and everybody wants to contribute and you know, you shouldn't stop that from happening. Um, but most people don't have the training to convert an idea into a plan, which is really what design is for me. That's a really good way to phrase that. What
2: were some of the biggest struggles with Diablo? Because it took so long, but I remember the, the build-up to it was just
0: so exciting. That was I played that game way too much. <laughs> yeah, well, I only worked on it the first four years, and then it got switched over to another team down in Irvine, and so I kind of lost track of it, and that's when I switched over and started working on Spore at that time. Um, but for us, I think the team, the main ideas that we were working on were uh, the team didn't want to make Diablo when we first started out because Diablo 2 was a huge success. The Diablo 2 expansion pack had just come out. It was a huge success. And everybody was just bored of, I don't say bored, they were just like ready for a change. They had just spent a huge amount of time working on a Diablo game. And then to say, let's make another one now. It's like, we just shipped this one. Like, why would we want to do that? Let's do something new. And so that's where I think some of the early challenges were of getting a team that was very well-known for doing a certain thing, trying to present ideas that would be different from that. And it's like, are they just going to be shades of that? You know, are you are going to just make a futuristic Diablo, for instance, um, or are you going to just come up with a whole new game, new genre, you know, third person, you know, type game. And we went through several different prototypes and iterations before we ended up, you know, we should just make Diablo 3. Um, so like
2: same world, same style. Yeah, just
0: uh, yeah. continue the story
1: from where it left off in Diablo 2.
0: Which was also a massive
1: success. I mean, yeah. Diablo 3 yeah. did not fail because it had just followed a, a success, right? Right. Well, oh, I mean, And th- there was over a decade of <laughs> lag
0: time. Yeah, I mean, and there's a reason that publishers want to you know, just make the plus one game uh, because they already know that well, if they're going to invest how many ever tens of millions of dollars... Um, into a game like that over a long period of time, they need to make sure that's going to pay off at some point.
1: Yeah, every time they start a new concept, they want to turn it into a franchise. Yeah, because there's a lot of money in that.
0: Yeah, but for every you know Diablo three or SimCity five or whatever, then you get like something like Minecraft that just comes out of nowhere and it's number one and it's fresh and original, and then that really takes off and becomes huge. Uh, because I found overall players want new. They they're comfortable with certain things, and if they love their genre, they love their story that they've you know invested in. Then they'll want to see the next Halo or the next uh, Resident Evil or whatever. Um, but the new things are really the groundbreaking things that can really get people energized and excited. But they're the most risky for a big publisher.
2: What do you think it is about the design of Minecraft that made it so popular?
0: Um, for me, what I think it is is that the player is actually the designer in that game. So it's not really um, some designer in a studio saying, here's like the structure that we have set up for you and it will take you 20 hours to get from point A to point B and here's what you do in this order. It's here's just this playground and it's a bunch of Lego blocks essentially. So build whatever you want. And how long is that going to take? It's like that's up to you to decide. And what adventures are you going to have? That's up to you to decide. So in some ways it's really saying like you can be a designer of a video game which is very powerful, especially for young children who have played a lot of video games to suddenly be given tools that let them create like that. Um, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of that in video games of worlds that the players are owning and creating, as opposed to being like fed to them from uh, a company that's like worked it all out in advance.
2: Is that like the modern equivalent of us tinkering with electronics and taking apart TVs and stuff
0: yeah I think it's just anything you know taking a or bicycle to see how it works. Um, but anything that's more creative I find um, the especially with all the, like the maker stuff going on now and the tech shops and things like that like this ability now to 3d print plastic pieces or laser cut pieces for games and, or whatever you want um, I'm finding that to be like really exciting and fascinating in some ways more so than the electronic game design because the tools for building these physical games are getting more and more sophisticated all the time. You've built quite a few physical games, too, mainly for your family, it sounds like. Yeah, so I would build one for Christmas every year, starting when my kids were two, up until I'm still doing it, So and they're in their 20s now. So I have, like, 19 or 20 games now that I've built for the kids for Christmas over the years. And, like, they started out as very... Basically, I was cannibalizing their toys from their toy box and just saying, oh, give, give me your cars and your dinosaurs and your spaceships. And we can make games out of these. But later on over the last few years, everything's completely custom designed and all created on laser cutters and 3d printers and things like that. What'd you make this last Christmas? Um, I'm actually working on um, a refrigerator game where it's a word game and you play it on your refrigerator, which I felt was a great place to put a game because it can last for several weeks up there, but it doesn't get in the way, and it's all magnetic. so um, It's you very can communal, just, too. You can, yeah, and so you it's see what you're in. eating, and you can kind of discuss the game uh, while it's up on the refrigerator. It's like
1: a moderately MMO.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moderately MMO, yeah. So, yeah, it, and uh, we had a version of it, an earlier version with popsicle sticks that we played with the kids where like games could last like months. Um, you would just take your turn whenever you walked by the refrigerator, but you'd want to take your turn when no one is around. So it was a lot different than normal games where everybody wants to watch everybody make their move. This is like, you kind of want to do it in secret when no one's watching. So they can't see your plans and you would map everything out with magnets and popsicle sticks and figure out your trajectories and things like that. And then make your move, put a marker up to show the next person it's their turn. So what was the goal there? Um, In that case, it was this kind of, um, well, everybody had their own popsicle sticks, and you would make these chains of them kind of branching out like roots uh, of a tree or something like that, Um, and they would just spread out over the refrigerator surface. So you start with a single line of popsicle sticks, but then it starts to branch and branch and branch, and eventually you're trying to touch everybody else's base. So you start in four corners of the refrigerator, and then you're trying to touch the other three people's corners with your Popsicle sticks. (laughs) Um, But you could cut them off, uh, and it's all magnetic, so you could actually build bridges of magnets to go over top or under um, other people's Popsicle stick bridges. And then the version I've been working on um, over the last year basically adds words and letters into it. So that it's kind of like playing Scrabble on your refrigerator, um, but you still have the same arrows and bridges, and you can go under and over to make your words <laughs> and try to cut people off. That's crazy.
2: That's so cool. Do you approach uh, that kind of game design the same way that you would, like a Sim City, or are they totally different spheres? No,
0: completely different. Like in almost every way, they're completely different. Um, the a Sim City game, you know, it's like I don't know, twenty five million in production, another twenty five million in marketing, something like that and you've got teams of 100 people for four years. So everything that you do, like you're spending tens of millions of dollars with every decision that you make, and you need to be really careful about your plans and your designs because when you come out of pre-production and go into production, you need to make sure everybody knows and agrees with what's going to happen over the next couple of years because they're going to start hiring a lot of people to build these these things up. Um, Where the games I make for my family is just... Well, no budget, no time. You know, I, I try to get them out and c- by Christmas, but it's somewhat an artificial deadline because I'll still tweak on them forever, even after I wrap them up and put them under the Christmas tree. What um, about
2: like on a systems level, though? Thinking about rules and and conditions and variables that can come up and things like that.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that's going to be the same. The at a very low level, I think a lot of those will will map over, but it's just a completely different scale. Right. You know, SimCity has so many different systems all interacting with each other in so many different ways. Like you have school systems and garbage systems and police systems and pollution systems and water systems. And they all have to like talk to each other and interact where with a game on my refrigerator, it's like I've got 26 letters, of the alphabet and 16 arrows. Okay. You know, and I just have to make that stuff interact. And that's going to be a lot easier, but it's also a lot more flexible because there's no pressure uh, that you get at a big corporation or a big publisher. Um, you don't have a deadline. You don't have a marketing budget. It's just like I just have to make these three people in my family happy, and it's a success.
2: What's been your favorite game to work on so far?
0: Um, Computer game or board game?
2: Uh, One of each, yeah. Okay. I'd go for overall. Um, overall.
0: Well, SimCity, I I think by far, is, I think from, there was the game design part of it, which was just incredibly, incredibly overwhelming, I would say. There was just so much going on but the way that it made me grow as a person working on that game was really refreshing and satisfying because you work on a game like Diablo or the Simpsons game or games like that. And you're basically like things are killing things or shooting things or running over things. And the message that you're putting out into the world feels very like you're just making entertainment. Like at the end of the day, you're like, I'm just going to make some kid be happy for a while um, because they've got to kill a demon uh, where with SimCity you're like, I might be able to make a kid like love their city. I might make a kid understand something about the world that if they hadn't played this game, they would never would have understood that. And your knowledge of demon slaying doesn't really translate over well into the real world. But uh, your knowledge of, uh, that depends. Yeah. City's <laughs> class is a game. Yeah. Yeah. But your knowledge of like how roads work and yeah. and uh, why mass transportation is important, why schools are important and you know, how water systems work, um, I found just both for me, learning and researching those systems, and kind of becoming smarter about cities myself. Um, and then this idea, and maybe it's a high-minded ideal, but like you know, four million people have played the SimCity game, the recent one that I worked on around the world. And you're like, well, maybe that's four million potential people who know more about their cities now than they did uh, before they started playing this game.
1: I'd always assumed it was a fictionalized version of the actual civic systems. Did you actually like dig into a, a bunch of research on it?
0: They're all abstractions. I mean, it's a video game. Okay. And so ultimately you're, you still are trying to entertain people. And, you know, the, the joke was that if it was really a simulation of a city, you would spend all day long in a city council chambers. <laughs> um, I play that game. Yeah, <laughs> Leslie, nope, the video game. <laughs> you're into that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we obviously can't make like, or don't want to make the real one. No one would buy it. It would be really very uh, dry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we try to liven things up a bit, but the systems that we work on, there is a lot of discussion about why they're in the game and what messages we want to try to get across with those systems in the game. You know, for instance, with education, it was really important for me to say that, like, education is this magic cure. Like, it'll fix everything. It'll fix pollution, and it'll fix crime, it'll fix all this stuff. Um, but it's a slow thing so like you put down your school and it takes some time before it starts to build up how very liberal of you yeah well <laughs> religion <laughs> fixes everything yeah <laughs> um, that's so cool so we would we put those in there and you know we maxis is in the bay area so yeah we're a very liberal company and we're surrounded by the bay area so we have these very strong biases that we put into the game um, but we tried to be as fair as we could so like for instance with all the power plants we could have just said, like, solar is great and coal sucks and and tuned the game in such a way that if you use coal power, power plants, then you're just evil, and if you use solar, you're, you're great. Um, but it's like, our solar turns off during the night, and then what are you going to do? Coal plant and, increases production. Yeah, and so we actually looked into, like, why why are there coal plants? They must be good, otherwise they wouldn't still be around anymore um, and really try to model that in the game. It's like they're cheap, they're predictable, they're very efficient. Uh, where solar is kind of flaky and the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow for your uh, wind power and you're making these trade-offs. Um, and they also take up a lot of land, too, where your coal power plant can just kind of sit in a corner of your city and uh, your wind and your solar has to spread over time. How do you even start,
2: if you have a game that, that is that complex, How do you how do you break it down and even keep track of all these different moving components?
0: Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, part of it is we have other SimCities to use as models, so we're okay. not coming into it from zero. Yeah, fair enough. We can look at all the different ones from the past and use those. Um, and actually, to, like, to start out with the latest SimCity, we just looked at the last ones and just wrote down all their systems and said this is everything that they have in them, and that's probably the minimum bar that we would want to have in our game. But then we can look at them and say, well, what are the new things that are happening? Um, What are things that we don't think were really modeled well that, um, for instance, traffic wasn't really modeled in the previous SimCity games. It was just kind of fake graphic noise on top of the roads where in this latest one, we really wanted like every car is on a mission. It's going from someplace to someplace else. And when they all decide to go to work in the morning, then you get a traffic jam naturally. So it's not just a decoration on top of the roads. It actually is a traffic jam because everybody's trying to get to work at the same time. Um I love the parallel
2: between, like, you have something that complex and you can kind of break it down into smaller components, and it's sort of what we do in on the website of just atomic design, if I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> I knew Bryn would, yeah. would love but, that. But, I
0: mean, it works a lot like that. Like, we would make a list and just say, this is just a text list, and here's all the things as just a word that we want in the game, and then each one of those becomes its own um, wiki page that we would build up. And then we start adding more detail, and then we start to talk to the artists, and they give us concept art, and it just slowly gets filled in over time. But you're always doing that top-down design. You're saying, like, this is everything we want, and now let's start digging into the details once everybody's confident at that level. Do you build external-facing wiki pages? No, no. They're all just internal. I'd
1: always wondered if those were fan-based or like studio based if, um, if people were giving like hints on how to oh, solve yeah. problems
0: yeah a lot of them are just fan based okay. they'll set their own up but we have an equivalent thing in-house it's just you can't access it unless you're on the company network that makes a lot more sense
2: how does all of this change if you say move from a pc game to a console game does that change what you do as a game designer or is that a separate like
0: mechanics question um no it changes a lot How you have to think about the problem. One of the first things with any project as a designer, you're going to say, like, who's your audience for this and what platform is it going to be on? Because you have completely different constraints making an iPhone game than you would an Xbox game. And you have to work those constraints into your design. Like, again, a visionary could just come in and say, like, I just want this all to happen. But the designer's got to say, like, well, this is how much memory we have. This is, uh, you know, how many models we can actually put into the game. And so we're going to have to cut back on the ultimate simulation of everything, which would be really cool, but we have to make it fit on, you know, in the memory footprint of the machine that we have.
2: Do you have a favorite platform to design for?
0: Uh, PC is definitely the easiest, and almost all my work has been PC. I worked on a Simpsons game, which was console-based, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of restrictions working with the consoles. Uh, they're much more constrained in what you can do, but on the other hand, they're very predictable. Like everybody who has that console, you know, has the same console. Where with a PC, it's like it's a PC game, but everybody has a completely different PC. So they're a bit of nightmare for the QA people who are the engineers who have to make sure it works on every configuration ever.
1: I just have to ask because I play a lot of RPGs on Macs, but is that like a significant constraint difference from, yes. a, from a PC? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. because um, for instance, with the PC, uh, the uh, Mac version of SimCity, was a completely different engineering group trying to convert everything over on the PC to work within Mac. And it was its own challenge God. with its own set of problems. I totally played that game on Mac. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still worked, and you know, eventually they got it all working there. But it was one of those things um, where it's like, well, it's going to have to come out later. Yeah, it did but come it, out yeah. pretty far later. And that's yeah. because it's like there's everybody's working to get the main game done, and we don't have the resources to work on those ports until after the main game's done.
1: I was wondering if it was, like, a separate group. Um, I know, like, Civilization was done by a separate group after the fact was, like, after it was built on PC, they'd send it to a different group. I uh, can't think what the name is right now. But they would they would basically port it over, and then I just wondered if it was, like, porting it to the new code base.
0: But Yeah, uh, frequently it's a whole other group, like, outside of the company. They'll just yeah. contract to somebody who specializes in doing that. Um, at EA, the it's big enough that they have their own people that can usually do that but okay. it, depends, you know, it depends on the scope of the project and the budget and things like that
2: so I'm more of a casual uh, and I don't filthy casual I'm a filthy casual and I don't know that I have the the eye or the feel to uh, like differentiate between good game design and bad game design I'm wondering like first of all is, is that something that's always on your mind when you're playing something but also like what are the defining characteristics of something good
0: yeah, um, it is for me just because I do game design, so I can't help but play a game and break it down all sorts of different ways. Um, yeah, good game design and bad game design, like mostly you play the games that have good game design because those are the ones you hear about and people tell you about, and those are the ones that get a lot of attention. Um, there's, especially in the App Store now, there's more bad game designs <laughs> out there than anybody mm-hmm. will ever know. No um, kidding. And, yeah. And so that can, you know, if you want to study bad game design, just, you know, go look at very low ranked stuff on the app, <laughs> on the app store, even high ranked stuff on the app store is terrible. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of copycats and, yeah. and things too as You know, so it's like, oh, this is a great game design. It's so good. It made a lot of money. So we're going to make it the same game. We're just going to change the graphics around a bit. Um, so, you know, yeah. well, is that a good design or not? Like it's a good, it's based on a good design. It just you have is. to
2: also define what good is like, is good, the ability to make money or addictiveness or cause I think of something like candy crush and I don't know that it's necessarily good game design, but it's certainly addicting and it certainly made the millions oh, of dollars. It's
0: incredible game design. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, it gets a lot of like bad presses. Like, are oh, you just matching three candy? But. The ways in which they make you match three candies together. And I won't go into it all now, but from a game design point of view, you look at it, it's like, it's not a coincidence that that game has you know, tens of millions of people around the world playing it. Um, it's because they did things right. And uh, it's, you know, if they did things wrong, it wouldn't have that stickiness to it. People wouldn't still be playing it and waiting for the new levels to come out and, and continually, you know, working their way up through it. So, um, you know, games that don't have that. People stop playing them, and they you, know, you don't hear about them. What are common signs of a game that has bad design? Like, uh, well, I mean, like I said, the first one is you've never heard of it, so that's like a <laughs> common side <design> effect. <laughs> it's an easy win. Uh, yeah. um, so a lot of it would just be the challenge level is maybe too hard or too easy. Okay. So and that's a that's a difficult thing to solve for a designer because you don't know who's going to be the player of your game. It might be a five year old. It might be a forty year old. Like you don't know. They might be drunk. I don't know, but like, I'm going to make this game and just assume that it's at the right difficulty level and it will attract its own audience. So people that are comfortable with the challenges that that game presents will gravitate towards it. Um, like, Flappy Bird is like a great example. It's like a lot of people got Flappy Bird. There was all this hype about it. They played it for three minutes and then never played it again. Um, but there are certain groups of people who it was very important to get the high score on Flappy Bird and show your friends that you could get good at it
1: and people were selling iphones with it installed for like <laughs> uh, fifty thousand yeah. dollars which is some insane oh my god
0: yeah. so you know so that's going to be one of the things of like tuning that experience to your audience and that's why i said earlier knowing when you go into a game design it's like who are you really making this for um, who's your audience and it's a huge mistake to say oh well, we're gonna make it for everybody and that's really what your bosses want to hear it's like can you make a game for everybody because that'll sell the most of course Um, But really focusing your audience and saying, no, this is for this certain demographic makes the job so much easier because then you can just look at what that demographic enjoys and kind of build your design around that.
1: It's a very common phrase in product design that if you design for everyone, you design for no one.
0: Yeah, it's it's similar
1: with games. But from an accounting perspective,
0: it sounds brilliant. Yeah, of course. (laughs) You want everybody to play your game. Um, But there are like types of activities in games that some people enjoy and other people don't. So, for instance, some people really just like socializing. And especially with board games, you get a bunch of people together around a table and play a board game, and at the end of the day, everybody just had a great time. It's like, who won or who lost? Like, I don't even remember the next day. It's like, it doesn't really matter. It was just fun to get everybody together, and that type of socializing, you know, if the game didn't have that type of communication and camaraderie and laughter, then people might say that that game sucks. It's terrible. It was very badly designed. But yet, there's other types of games that are like super challenging, and no one ever talks to each other, and there's just this mental contest going on. And some people will gravitate towards those types of games and say that was so well designed, it was so awesome, it's perfect. Um, But you know, as a party game, it would completely fail. So it's impossible to make that one universal game that everybody is going to agree like this is the the perfect game. Um, You're always going to find subsets of people who enjoy it or not. And it's like any form of entertainment, right? You're not really making a mission-critical thing. You're saying, like, here's something. You have some free time in your life. You can choose from how many things you can do with your free time now. It's like, you know, you can... There's so many apps, so many uh, things on YouTube, television, everything. You can go to a bar. You can see movies. And I'm going to decide to pull out a game out of the closet or, you know, play this game instead of doing all these other things.
2: Does that shortening attention span like weigh on you as a designer building sort of bigger 60 100 hour games
0: um not really because you're hoping again if you know your audience they want that experience okay yeah, you know, yeah so people who sense. are really into SimCity sure. city have spent hundreds of hours in it and they've custom built their models and they show off their cities and they do all sorts of things uh, that can just be like you look at some of the people making um like replicas of subway systems in Japan and SimCity city down, you know, these little details. It's just crazy. And you watch, they do these speed builds, which then they post up on YouTube, um, like these fast forward versions of them. And you're like, that's like days and days of work of like building out all of this stuff. Um, so that type of person, of course, like that's who you're going to cater to when you're making a Sim City game. You're not going to cater to somebody who's like, I love candy crush. And they want their little, <laughs> they want their bite sized thing. They can play on the subway that's not going to be SimCity. I
2: know? guess they could be the same person, but different yeah, well, yeah, time but of day. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I was thinking it's interesting when people build games inside of games. Like, uh, what's that PlayStation game where you can, uh, with Sackboy, remember, a little big planet, Play little bit you, planet you can build yeah. entire computers inside the game.
0: That's, yeah, that's, and that's the same. another example, like the Minecraft thing we were talking about earlier. Like, that's the kind of game where it's not really a game, it's just a tool to make your own games. Do you have to, like,
1: that? that feels like a hack do you have to fight against that kind of thing or do you just like say "eh"? here's here's the thing just go with it as a designer yeah i mean i also there's things like kiting in skyrim for example where you're like you climb up on an awkward angle on a rock and then you can just destroy everything
0: yeah that's great like you you want your players to play with your game okay like, and any way that they can find entertainment in it then that's i always
1: wondered if you tried to block
0: it through like qa or if that was just like a eh sure i mean if it's a bug then yeah you don't want a bug that would break the game like if there was some way that you could get a million gold by you know just jumping up and down then you probably want to block things like that okay because like i said before if it's if the game gets really easy people just quit usually they, they find those hacks and those cheats but if it's something where people feel like they're being creative uh then you know it, sometimes they feel like they're breaking the game but the designers know that that's in there and it's like so you're still sitting in front of your machine playing this game. That's kind of a win.
1: That's really interesting. I always wondered about that with like the rocket jumps in Halo and stuff like that, where you could just like get get an unfair advantage. Yeah,
0: but it takes some skill to do, so yeah. you still have to practice it and work on it. And it's, it's just then, a different... gameplay, right? It's like I was able to master a skill in this game that you haven't been able to master, so I should be better than you, and I should beat you when we play this game.
1: Do you ever tweak those to make them harder to do, or like... Hone those weird bug things. I guess it's not a bug, but
0: um, hacks. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the type of game. I haven't worked on a lot of games of that sort. In fact, I haven't worked on any games of like third person or first person shooter type games. Um, so I'm not sure of all like the details in there, but it's going to be players, QA people, the team are going to be playing the game all the time. Yeah. So you would assume most of that stuff is going to be found. But the scale of the internal testing is always so small compared to once you get out into the real world. You know, you're multiplying people playing the game by 100,000 or more. Um, so they're just, by sheer brute force, are going to find things that you never could find before.
1: Most of the things that seem like secrets probably aren't.
0: Yeah, and they just know. And you say, like, you're going to set this up, and people will find it, and they'll think that this was cool. Okay. Um, you know, little Easter eggs, things like that. Like in SimCity, we had a bunch of famous landmarks, and one was a Globe Theater and if you put down the Globe Theater and you click on it, it'll actually play uh, Shakespeare plays, but in Simglish. So the kind of like the nonsense gibberish, the Sims talk um, are kind of like all going on in there. And it's and I didn't even know it was in there. Actually, the audio director like stuck it in there and I heard it after huh. the game shipped. And I, was, I just clicked on it because there's so many buildings. You can't like see them all and do all the combinations. So that kind of stuff, I think, is really fun.
2: Do you bring in outside people to test games during development or are you doing all in-house testing um, QA
0: It it ramps up I think just a lot of interactive design does this like you start out with a very small group and then you just keep broadening it out you invite you know your friends and family in and then you do like an alpha test and you just keep making the net bigger and bigger um, a lot of the mobile games right now, they'll test and like, eventually they'll work up to, like, let's do New Zealand, and they'll do a launch oh, in New yeah. Zealand. Oh, yeah, always New Zealand, right? Yeah, and because it's like it's far enough away that if something goes completely wrong, no one will ever hear about it. Um, but it's enough people... <laughs> Poor New Zealanders. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough people that we can get good, better uh, samplings of how this will work in the wild under different conditions. Half your players are sheep and the other half are hobbits, so...
2: <laughs> Hopefully... Well, I'm sure we have New Zealand listeners at this point um you, there's so much psychology going on there do, do, do you have have you studied user psychology and gone into all that or
0: yeah a lot um the it's all i'd say you know psychology one oh one kind of level stuff, but you need to know it if you're going to be a game designer um, in particular reward systems so you can there's this theory really of game designers you can make anybody do whatever you want as long as you reward them correctly. And if there's something in your game that people aren't doing, but you want them to do it, you just have to like tweak the rewards to make it more exciting when it happens. Um, in taking that outside of the game realm, it's like, I can, you know, can you manipulate anybody to do anything you want with the right reward? Uh, and fear factor. <laughs> there's fear, there's money, there's different things. And, and different people will respond differently to those things. Um, but in general, like there's an exercise that I run in my game design class. Where I can get people to roll dice nonstop for an hour just by slowly ratcheting up the rewards on them. And so we start out with just playing for poker chips and then we play for cookies and then we play for quarters and then we play for dollar bills. And the game is basically rolled double sixes and you have like 10, 15 people all around a the table. There's no turns. It's just like roll as fast as you can until you roll a double six and then yell freeze and you get the thing in the table, in the middle of the table. And in the beginning, um, they're happy to play it for a poker chip, and they're really excited about that poker chip. And then when you go up to Cookies, they get really excited, and you go up to Quarters, and they're super excited, and they think this is the best game ever. And then when you finally switch over to Dollar Bills, they're like, oh, no, this game is so incredible, I can't wait to tell my friends about what an awesome game this is. You're like, you're rolling dice as fast as possible to roll double sixes. <laughs> like, that's it. Um, but by ramping up the rewards, you can keep people energized and excited about it. Now, that's got a big problem, which is that I don't want to start pulling out $5 bills and $10 bills uh, to teach this lesson. Yeah, where do you stop? Yeah, I stop at dollars because the the lesson's been learned at that point. Um, But the class always asks "Is like, where's the fives? Where's the 20s? Because now you've put them on this anticipation of, like, the game just keeps getting better and better. And this is a big problem with a lot of commercial games where the content runs out after a while. Diablo 3. Yeah, and your consumers will use up that content faster than you can possibly make it. World of Warcraft, things like that. They'll spend a year or more working on an expansion pack for World of Warcraft, and it comes out, and people are beating it within the first weekend so that they can brag about how I've beaten all the content that you've given me. And so they're always able to consume it faster, but then you always want the next higher level of reward, otherwise you'll stop playing. Um, So you can't go backwards either. So once you give people a taste of something really good once you start giving them dollars you, you can't say let's now play for poker chips people will just rebel they'll be like I don't want to do that anymore like it seemed good at the time but I don't want to keep playing that game now
2: so how do you how do you build that factor in when you're doing a game do you intentionally start with like thinking end game do you do you start with low low end game rewards and build that over time I'm thinking like the Diablo legendary item system like when it when Diablo 3 first came out it was impossible to find a legendary and since then since the expansion now you can find them on every run basically and now the 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 challenge is finding one that's that's good So, like i feel like i can see that ramp up over a couple years of expansions and stuff but how do you plan for that at the beginning
0: um you just hope (laughs) like there's you know like you you can know some things that are going to work because again you can look at diablo 2's play patterns and you can see like who are the people still playing this game after they beat diablo
1: you had research to
0: go from um, yeah, you have like real players out there playing the game actively and you can just look and see like, okay, you kill Diablo in regular mode. Then what do you do? Well, then you go to nightmare mode, then you go to hell mode. Then what do you do? Like there's nothing left really, but people started coming up with their own games. So for instance, there was a very popular thing called the naked barbarian, game, <laughs> which is like you, you see how far you could get w- with a barbarian, but you're not allowed to equip any items onto him. And you will die, but you want to get farther than the other person that you're playing with. And so they start making games out of the content and assets that Blizzard had provided, in a way like with Minecraft and you know, Little Big Planet, things like that, where they're turning it into their own game design. They're saying, "You've given us all these cool pieces. What games can we play with these pieces?" Uh, you know, people are natural game designers. If you just think of when you're a kid. Like nobody gave you a rule book or the wiki page for tag or hide and seek and said like here's how you play. Oh, you're not playing by the rules. You know, you're playing it wrong. Like someone taught you and you change the rules and you modify it. And you know you go to a playground at at school and kids are running around playing games all the time with no rule book and no game designer looking over them saying you know you're playing that wrong. This isn't the way I intended you play hide and seek.
1: What do you think about like story driven games where the only reward is really like more story?
0: If the story's compelling, like some people will do that. I mean, you could say the same about a book. It's like, what do you think about a book where the, you read another chapter and there's another chapter <laughs> the rewarded? It's not good story. enough. Yeah, like, the
1: standout yeah. for me is like uh, Spec Ops The Line. Have you played that one? I haven't played that one. You basically commit atrocities. You can't win. You just get more story. It's such a weird concept to me that, that people just play just because, like, oh, I have to play through this hard thing that is just terrible.
0: Yeah. And that's where like part of being a game designer is trying to get out of your own headspace about what you like and what you don't like. Like the, the game that you're charged with that your clients asking you to design may not really be something that you would want to play personally, or you may not understand the audience. I mean, it's somewhat unfortunate if that's the case, but you should be able to, as a designer, look at the audience that you're designing for and not really bias at a lot of like what you would want as a game um, player. So a lot of times with the games, it's when you're designing them working on them every day, you're the worst person to really know what's going on. You have to constantly get new people, fresh eyes, try it with a bunch of different people, because you'll bring in all these biases into the experience just by the nature of you know everything going on underneath the hood. So there's no way you can really give a good opinion about what's going on that the normal player would understand. Um, you know, somebody just coming into the game fresh. So I don't know. In other forms of design, do you guys have the term Kleenex tester. Do you no, that? I've never heard that one. I oh. haven't heard that. Oh, so the Kleenex tester is um, basically like a Kleenex. You use it once and you throw it away. Um, and so the w- when you're working on a game and say like we need some Kleenex testers, this would be people who don't know anything about the game at all. You use them once and then you have to throw them away. Like they're they're then tainted from that point on, and you would never <laughs> want to use it anymore. It's been <laughs> soiled. Yes, exactly. So uh, the Kleenex tests are the ones where you... That might be where you go out to a mall and kind of corral some people or bring in some friends and family that don't know anything about the game. But you only see them once, and then they can't come in anymore.
1: As far as biases in game design, do you play a lot of games on your own? Or video games specifically? Um,
0: Yeah, constantly. Um, But I don't play them deep. I just kind of play as many as I can, usually. Okay, There's a few exceptions, but... um, Do you have any you really like? Uh, yeah, I've been playing this game FTL for quite some time. Okay. If you are familiar with that, I know one. FTL. Yeah, so and, and I like kind of the games where you are always challenging yourself and seeing how far you can get.
1: So like roguelikes.
0: Yeah, uh, so okay. a lot of the roguelike games I find. You played Rogue be, Legacy? Um, I haven't played that one, but I am familiar with it. I really like that one.
1: <laughs> Brent is just
0: grinning. <laughs> Do
1: you ever play like a lot of uh, couch games or anything like that? That that seems to be a really interesting trend right now. Is that a lot of couch multiplayer games seem to be coming back?
0: Um, I don't as much anymore because my kids are now grown up and they're out of the house. But back when they were there, that was you know, we were all about console games, as you know, the Wii and the GameCubes and the Xboxes and, and all of that. And the living room was the spot for gaming in our house. And then as they got older, later into high school, they retreated up to their rooms with their headphones on and started playing who knows what. Um, just their own like separate experiences that they didn't really want to share with the family at that point, you know, things that are a lot more violent and a lot more intense where you really want to just like focus without distraction of somebody telling you, you need to do your chores, things like that. Um, But yeah, I've been a gamer forever and I just try to play anything basically that I hear is cool or hot or the new thing. It's like, I need to try it out right away. And that includes things like candy crush and stuff where a lot of other people especially in the game industry might be like oh why are you playing that that's terrible it's like well you gotta like get into that i I want to understand it really and it's the same thing about getting out of your own biases and out of your own headspace it's like learning with psychology right yeah it's like why do you know tens of millions of people like this game just because i don't or you don't doesn't negate those opinions of those people and so if i can understand why those systems work and can attract so many people to play them that might be something i could bring into the games that i'm working on
2: how do you feel about the broader trend in the industry of uh in-app purchases and basically stunted games in anticipation of selling dlc
0: um personally i don't like it i can totally understand it having worked at big companies like you know you have to make money as a
1: business model it's yeah.
0: really
2: good <laughs> but, um i mean but right how does that change what you do as a designer you're like oh shit i have this idea for this amazing game but the business says i have to put in in in-app purchases or something
0: yeah then you have to do it because you're the designer (laughs) i mean but that's again it goes back to the difference between like who are you as a designer like you are you the visionary of the game and you get to like dictate whatever what's going to happen or are you being asked from a client to come up with a solution to a problem and if you really say like I'm kind of this neutral person. Like you're paying me to solve problems and your problem has to do with how do I get people to give me more money Then I can apply all of the tricks of the game trade and reward systems and whatnot to try to make that happen. I have
1: a question for you, Brian. Oh God. As a designer for buffer that has a paid model. Yeah. Would you just give everyone the tool for free? Um, or would you just keep it to a small amount and be like, this is extra. This is DLC.
2: All right, fair point. Uh, I think with well, I mean, with every decision we ask, like how much can we give away for free, or like how cheaply can we give this away? I guess not giving it away.
0: But uh, it sounds like that's fairly similar. Yeah, well, yeah. I, the model at Riot is almost 180 from a lot of the other big publishers like EA, where their feeling is that if you make a great game, people want to give you money. Like they love your game so much, they Agreed. want yeah. to extend it out.
1: League of Legends is free to play, right? Yeah.
0: Um, and then you can buy optionally. You don't need to, but you can buy champions and costumes and skins for your champions. And it doesn't give you an edge in the game. It doesn't make you better. It's just a way of expressing yourself within the game. And a lot of players are like, I love this game so much that I want to feel special and unique. And maybe I even feel good giving money to riot because I love this experience that they're giving me for free. I'm happy to, you know, give them whatever, five, $10 for a special champion. Um, that'll make me feel happy where there's a win-win on both sides compared to the other model of game design where it's like you are now stuck unless you give us $5 or grind for 20 hours and you can decide whether or not it's worth your time. You know, but it's a model of game design, which I find really odd the fact that it even can work, but it's, it's saying like, we're going to make the game so frustrating and bad that instead of playing it, you would rather give us money to skip that part. Have you seen
2: Bitcoin Miner? <laughs> pay to win? Or I guess there's tons of those, like, oh, yeah. just click
0: games. Yeah, I'm actually playing this game called Tap Titans right now. Yes! Yeah. Oh,
2: dude, yeah. I know Tap Titans.
0: It yeah. doesn't sound like fun. Yeah, it's, it's like you basically just tap.
2: All you do is tap, and yeah. you can pay to tap faster. and pay Why to, is that good? it's Dude, it's this weird, like, the timing. Oh, no, I could, it. It's I the could break it down. It, please. The psychology? Yeah. yeah. It's insanely addictive.
0: Well, and, and this one, that's another one of those games, like Candy Crush, where I felt like some people were playing it, and other people were like... Why are you like playing a game where you just tap on the screen? That's all you do. And the people that were really into it were like, but it's so good. You don't understand (laughs) me. It's like, you should try it. It's like, I tried it. It was bad. And so then, uh, (laughs) but then I was like, well, what is it? Like I could try it for five minutes and just say, this is a game where I could tap or I could play it for three weeks or a month and see what, what are those long-term hooks? What's the rewards that you get from that game? And it really is this timing thing and a reward thing. Like I talked about where they're saying that. Within five minutes from now, you're going to get a superpower that's coming off cooldown. So you'll be able to like kill the boss in one hit or whatever. Um, So five minutes from now, I know I can push this button and kill the boss. So while I'm waiting for that five minutes to come by, I'm going to do this other thing. Well, then there's also 10 minute structures and 20 minute structures and hour long structures and day long structures. And so there's kind of no reason to ever quit. Yeah. And even if you try to quit, like if you stop playing, when you come back and turn it on again, it rewards you for not playing. It's like since you've been gone for a while, here's a million gold, um, and you're like, "Wow!" If I even just look at this game, it rewards me. <laughs> so there's there's always a reason to kind of come back. There's, to it. there's even one I played called
2: Bitcoin Billionaire,
0: and like, there's, what's, up, there's, what's up with you and all these Bitcoin
2: games? I don't know, man, but it's really sick. Like when you beat it, <laughs> you get game? a reward to just start over again. Yeah, like yeah, they'll yeah. Be- give you a trophy. Is that like, it's new like game oh my processes. god? I just spent. A hundred hours. I didn't actually do this, but like you would spend hours and hours and hours to beat it, and then to get one that last trophy, you just have to do it all again.
1: Do you ever <laughs> play Fez? Fez, no. Phil Fish, yeah, yeah. If, if you start, if you beat the game, you get to start the new game, but you can fly. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. Just a little bonus. Oh,
0: yeah, man. but you'll do it again. And, yeah, it's, and it gets you know those persistent trophies those become the bragging rights you say like i have 20 trophies how many do you have so who you restarted bitcoin miner 20 times man you're awesome or you're terrible depending wow on, so depending impressive. On the person you're talking to you yeah. really know how to use your you're a 20x yeah. bitcoin billionaire yeah. so but for some of those games, it's on my linkedin it sounds like a yeah. real thing though yeah like with um like flappy birds for instance um i heard about it about a week before the rest of the world heard about it and the reason I heard about it is because I was having dinner with a friend and he brought his daughter along who was in high school and we were having a conversation and she of course is on her phone completely bored and I'm like what are you doing? What what game are you playing? It's like She looked at me like you don't know Flappy Birds? Like how could you not know Flappy Birds? Everyone is playing Flappy Birds and I realized like everyone for her was everyone in her high school is playing Flappy Birds Um, and it was really big but it just wasn't big in the universal way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, So like if you were a certain age level, then you knew about it. Um, But if you're over that age level, you probably hadn't heard about it yet. Um, And so that was one of those games where you realize it's like, she's like playing this while we're talking. She's really into this game. I've got to try this game out. And then I tried it out. It's like, I don't understand this game. Like, how could this be popular? This makes no sense to me. Uh, But then you start digging into it and you start to see with certain social groups Getting more than one point in Flappy Bird is really important, but getting ten is great. And if you can get a hundred, then you must be like the Legendary. best person in the whole school. And a lot of games, the reward systems for games, you know, I talked about, I can give you gold coins, I can you know give you exotic weapons of plus twenty or whatever. Um, but the real reward that most games give is a social reward a way of comparing yourself with other people and that's very powerful in like junior high and high school when you're going through those different oh, peer groups wow yeah. <laughs> World um, of Warcraft
2: right yeah. like how cool does your guy look
0: yeah right. and so that's for the people in that universe it's very important right you know the League of Legends characters things like that that's a statement that you're making and that social feedback that you're getting when someone says oh that's a really cool champion you've got there makes you feel good it makes you feel mm-hmm. happy about getting that acknowledgement I mean, one of the examples I give is, do you know the Tony Hawk games? Have you ever played the Tony yes. Hawk Pro Dude, Skater game? Yes, have we ever played the Tony Hawk games? <laughs> so there's like, uh, when my kids were playing that, they weren't playing it multiplayer, but they might as well have been because they would go into school every day and during uh, like lunchtime. Wait, actual school or school the level? No, they would. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and they would, and they would talk about, uh, like what was your sixth score and Venice beach and, and all of this other stuff. Um, and so you realize it's like, well, they're playing this game multiplayer, even though it's a single player game and they're all playing it alone at home in the afternoon, but they're all sharing that experience when they get together for lunch at school and that social reward that they're getting about, you haven't beat Venice Beach yet? Man, you're like terrible. Oh, I did it a long time ago. secret areas. That's that's more reward than you can get that the game designer is ever going to give you. Um, And, you know, just a little tweak to the game. Like, for instance, let's say um, you took Tony Hawk exactly, but you called it Goofy's Pro Skater, and you replaced it with Disney characters. But it's the same controller, the same mechanic, the same sound. Maybe they switch the soundtrack to frozen or something like that oh, God. And, this
2: is a and, nightmare but, yeah, see, but it's
0: exactly the same game from a mechanical level it's the same engine it's the same physics it's the same everything but if you were to go to school the next day and say i just beat the frozen level on goofy pro skater <laughs> your friends aren't going to give you the social reward that you would desire and then you're going to kind of like i'm not going to talk about that i played that game because Interesting. there's no social reward coming from that experience
1: it's like massively multiplayer offline games
0: yeah you know and especially again at that age that's very important at that age that you find those peer groups
2: i love the parallel here because every year some guy or some girl will write this blog post that's like what i learned about app and web design by talking to a teenager there's one every year and the
1: solution is just don't talk to teenagers
2: yeah but (laughs) they they actually are like quite insightful about what's going to be big or like explaining why something is so captivating for them like every year it's like you know what's the big app this year it's foursquare this year it's instagram or snapchat Snapchat, yeah Yeah. um sounds like maybe there's some similar user research opportunities for games
0: yeah i think anything with that social currency is going to catch on a lot more than like a solitary experience that you wouldn't really share you know, and then it gets into like how far did you get on tap titans with your trophies you know how far did you get with the flappy birds like that is a huge reward brin doesn't get it people <laughs> playing that way i can't handle it it's a
1: high score you just man. didn't have a peer group and just, you know. well, i mean that that's a fair assessment but
2: <laughs> brin what you see here is brin's this is my peer group, group. <laughs> all right
1: well i'm glad
0: you invited me in eight I'm years just, later just kidding. <laughs> just
1: kidding uh yeah no
2: how are we doing on time because i have one more topic
0: do one more then.
2: Cool. What do you think about everything that's going on right now with, uh, VR games like the Microsoft Hololens and that's uh, your example and Oculus. Well, shut up. We'll do the <laughs> Minecraft thing, right? Like Minecraft, the Minecraft thing
1: Minecraft. is really interesting. Peeling away the
0: yeah. how do, table.
2: How are you viewing this shift towards that?
0: Um, so I haven't worked on any games like that yet, uh, but a lot of my friends have been working on the hardware and just trying out different ideas Um, I'm somewhat mixed. Like part of me thinks it's the future and everybody will just be sitting on couches with devices stuck over their eyes and ears in this kind of drooling state. And that kind (laughs) of, that kind of scares me. At the same time, it's super awesome. Um, so there's this little bit of like kind of unknown. I think as it is right now, I mean, I was just reading recently about like 3D television has pretty much been considered a failure. Yeah. And one of the reasons that they say is like, do I really want to like reach over for those 3d glasses that are on that other table over there? I'll just watch it in 2d. And if people don't even want to walk across the room to put on their 3d glasses, which are very lightweight and you know, fairly comfortable, are they really going to want to strap this big bulky thing on their head? Um, you know, they might do it once or twice for the, the novel experience, but is that something as a way of consuming entertainment? Um, is that going to be the way to go? Maybe it depends
2: on the reward system. Like once you enter that world,
1: I've been
0: very bullish on it, and I I
1: got to go hang out at Caleb Davenport's office, who's coming on the show on Thursday, Wednesday, and Kevin, Kevin Rose, was, like, super anti-VR. He was so, like, polarized against it, because the problem is you can't have multiple people in the same room and see them.
0: That was his his main
1: argument, was that it just can't be social in the same place but there's so many like online multiplayer multiplayer games that it seems like that's probably not an issue for most people from my perspective but he insists that that's you just can't do it without being able to play it locally
0: yeah i mean i think a lot of that will mature like the devices are going to get smaller and lighter and and easier to to use and put on and maybe you'll never take them off at some point um so i think those just technical problems. There is a trajectory that there will be solved. You know, is it five years? Is it ten years? You know, but at some point, are is the future of entertainment really putting this device and cutting off all your senses to the real world? Um, you know, one example that I saw, which kind of convinced me this could never really take off, was somebody standing there. Um, it was a YouTube video, and somebody standing there with the uh, Oculus on their head. And who knows, they're in their own, like, great, incredible world, right? And one of their friends is kind of just a prank, walks up and just basically nudges him in his shoulder. And he just flails. He loses his sense of balance. (laughs) He, like, trips. He falls down. (laughs) And his friends are just laughing at him. And it's like he was so into this world and cut off from what was going on around him that it was really easy for someone just, like, just by pushing him in the shoulder, just completely mess him up. And it really made me realize it's like that's – it's the kind of device like you want to lock the door and just hide in your room alone to really use it. And maybe if everybody else is connected, then that could maybe be a very social experience. Um, but you're always going to feel like this recluse, right? You're, you're kind of like this hermit.
1: <laughs> so my roommate has an Oculus, and the very basic demo has this thing where uh, – it goes through like a history of VR. And at one point you're in like this like creepy cabin thing and things start moving around in it. And there's a mattress that tries to fly over your head and will just like touch
0: people's head while they're doing
1: it and oh, they'll yeah. just freak out. They <laughs> yeah. start panicking.
0: There's the other it's one amazing. they do too with, um, there's a spider like crawls up your oh, arm God. <laughs> and then the person standing by has a feather. Oh, and, oh my God! You yeah, know, as you're like watching that. that's the, the spider crawl up your virtual <laughs> arm, and it like and it goes out of your field of view, and then they start tickling the back of your neck and things like that.
2: Oh, it's amazing! So, like that—that's the case in my mind against VR. Like it, it sounds very isolating. Is there a case for why this could be the future of game design or um,
0: Starship sure. games? Yeah, I mean, spaceship games. There's a lot of things about games that we've talked about already, um, you know, just like the reward systems and the challenges that they present. And I think if you approach it as, well, here's an audience, here's a platform, you know, here's what this uh, device uh, is good at doing. You could craft excellent games within those worlds, within those environments. So I have no doubt that we're going to see just incredible, beautiful things already. um, Hollywood is starting to use like the Weta factory and New Zealand is making um vr experiences right now you're getting like top notch um special effects houses are starting to work on these things and everybody wants to be this kind of a, you know, the the land rush of like who's going to be like the cool thing we don't quite know what that is yet but we're going to apply all of our hollywood professionalism to make sure that that happens so it's going to happen and it's going to be cool and it's going to be awesome um uh, but will it really become mainstream or will it just be this kind of fad like 3D glasses on your television set? I love Apple Watch. Oh my gosh, shut <laughs> up. I Dude, there's one so heated. many
2: parallels. There's so many parallels in like everything. I mean said, every you know,
1: I every, every single consumer product has that, right? Yeah. But there's so many FPSs that have like HUDs, right? That's a very common UI decision. Sure. It makes sense in this context. You're basically wearing like snowboard goggles, right? Yeah design it as if you're looking through snowboard goggles problem solved it seems
2: awesome yeah. or you can do it. they actually did and just put a hud in snowboard goggles for when you're snowboarding
1: that yeah, I saw cool. the, or you the, can the, play a video game with it that's way more fun the mini I also cooper learning, goggles
0: have you seen those too Which there's ones? like these mini cooper goggles that you put on while you're driving your mini around and it, it does hands oh, up stuff in in your goggles does it help driving. you park
1: like the italian job
2: <laughs> <laughs> man i really do do i haven't tried the snowboarding ones have you no, I, that's actually the first time I've heard about I, that. Uh, there, there's a
1: motorcycle helmet that so, does that. Too. So, but that's that's, slightly different.
0: that's different than like the Oculus. So the right Oculus the yes, yes. is different. really a sensory deprivation type thing where it's like, I'm going to cut off my ears and my eyes and give them over to this virtual thing where the HoloLens and a lot of the other augmented reality is uh, to say, okay. like, this is just augmenting. something that's going on. I'm still in the, I still have presence in the real world. I can still talk to you. I can still see you. Um, I'm not having to hide in a, in my room and close the door. So nobody taps me on the shoulder. You're there. You're part of this experience having to getting to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an honor. So
2: in, in, in that way, do you think that maybe Microsoft is on a better trajectory going the augmented reality route?
0: Um. I would say yes, but I haven't played with it at all. So I I have no idea what it's really like. In your game industry analytics
1: uh, (laughs) shoes.
2: Yeah, give us your expert opinion on this.
0: Um, I would love to work on a system like that just for the challenges that it presents and just exploring the new ground. Uh, From what I know about them, people will get sick right away if you do anything like roller coaster type experiences or where you're running around with a gun and things like that. And so the way of kind of crafting the experiences, you know, it has to be a lot different. Like you don't want somebody to try out your game and then get sick because that's not something they're going to want to do again. And a lot of people who play with these devices a lot, it's like, oh, you get over it. You know, you just have to use it a lot and then your body gets acclimated to it and, you, and then you'll just be just fine. But it's like,
2: that's a pretty know. steep learning curve. Yeah.
0: It's like, oh, do I really want to get sick for several days in a row so that I can then. Have the honor of going around in virtual. <laughs> you have to world. level up in the real world yeah. just to play this game. Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. So, but with the AR stuff, uh, since you do have that presence, you, like your motions, everything about it uh, is going to be much more integrated with who you are. As a person. want have to
1: sheer and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm, I like that a lot. Better. The first time I played the Oculus, I got sick. It was at Jeff's place. What did you, you play? Were you on a roller coaster? Uh, no, it was the space one. There's a space one that's like titans of space or something like that, and you go around and like see all these planets and you're like zooming around oh, in space yeah. and stuff it really messed with me and then the new version just just because the frame rate got better and the resolution probably i guess um it was totally different. it was so much fun. I did the exact same thing, but instead of getting like queasy, I was just, it was like a revelation yeah I, I don't know I'm really excited about it, but I'm also hesitant i mean until yeah. it gets on the market for real instead of being dev kits
0: who knows yeah i'm sure i'll have one i'm sure i'll explore it and play around with it but whether or not it becomes the mainstream is still very much an open question
1: well if you beat the frozen level on goofy yeah. pro <laughs> skaters <laughs>
0: yes, it's all about the social rewards yes can every high schooler have their own oculus yes guess we'll we'll, we'll see yeah
1: I think we're out of time so all right appreciate you joining us anything you like to plug you're at stone on twitter
0: yeah that's about it straightforward uh, i like it yeah Stonetronics.com is my website yeah. and with an x with an x yeah and there's a lot of materials if you're interested in game design especially if you're a teacher uh, there's a lot of materials for my classes uh, up online there that you can download and your gdc try talks experience. which were yeah.
2: incredible yeah thank you yeah yeah the gdc talk Ah, oh, that was so cool this morning i loved it um
1: what was it what was the title design over games Something like um that. it was less game more design cool check it out
2: awesome that'll be in the show notes thanks for coming on again stone. all right you're welcome thank you awesome
1: you exit the cave <laughs> blood drifts on your sword
2: it's not as cool when you do it i know i don't have that <laughs> voice yeah that was an awesome episode uh so fun chatting with stone if you enjoyed it hit us up on twitter we're at design details fm or just rate us on itunes if you rate us five stars it helps us get in front of new people uh gets the show more exposure and we get to invite more awesome guests on to learn about design
1: we have some cool ones coming up i'm really excited we have a good list we have a i'm so excited great list so yeah unnecessary hype
2: (laughs) we're hyping the show all right thank you again so much to iconfinder.com for sponsoring this episode Uh, Icon Finder, as you know, is the largest source of premium vector icons on the web. They're adding thousands a month. When this comes out, it would have been last week. They just crossed 500,000 icons. They actually care about the design community, and they're they're huge supporters of, of our show. So if you can uh, show them some love, go to iconfinder.com, use the promo code ROBOT, and get 50% off your first month of Icon Finder Pro.
1: Our other sponsors, once again, Envision, the only design platform that lets you prototype, collaborate, iterate, and user test on one place. And now you can give people tours. So you can start designing the future today. Check it out at envisionapp.com slash sign up slash design details. Don't be pterodactyl. Good night. <laughs>